This is Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast where we discuss common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Mark. I'm Matt Henry. I'm Matt Miller. And I'm Lena. All right, guys. You know the drill before we get into it, before we enlighten you with all our bibliology tonight, we need to ask you a couple things. One, if you like this or... uh, No, if you like this, please rate and review on iTunes. Five star only. Everything else we're going to call out in the next podcast. Also, if you like it, feel free to share the episode on Facebook and like it as well there. Um, That would greatly appreciate it. And we get the word out. So what are we talking about tonight, guys? Bibliology. Bibliology. That's right. You said that. Bibliology. (laughs) Well, that's what... That was terrible. All right. We already have discussed. Let me, let me just do it again. No. No. Okay. Fine. I think you're fine. It. I think bibliolatry folks were the ones messing things up. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> hey, you're accused of what you're accused of, you know? Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. Anyhow, we're still, we're going to talk about bibliology, as we said in the other podcasts on Revelation. We're, we're just taking you through the whole realm of systematic theology, and that's our goal. So we're going to take it in bite-sized pieces and hopefully it will be helpful to you. Um, And since our whole title is Faith Faith and Fable, we're we're developing the faith aspect of it. Uh, The better we understand truth, the better we're gonna be able to see the fableness of stuff. How's that? Or fable. Fableiness. Fableiness, is that? Yeah, that's the right term. Anyhow. (laughs) That is the technical term for it. Well, last time we talked about general revelation and special revelation, right? Yes, sir. So general revelation was that revelation that we see just in God's creation. It speaks forth, it declares forth that there's a creator, that there's beauty, that there's um, organization, those kinds of things. But But, also the conscience. Yep, and then that the law of God is written on people's heart, Romans 2. But none of that is sufficient for salvation. Right. You need then special revelation, which is the word of God alone, uh, in which you learn about the nature of Jesus Christ and salvation and the gospel and all that good stuff. And you learn in a personal way who God is and what he's like. So that's kind of how you start this whole thing with bibliology is that there's general and then special. And so this whole episode's devoted to special revelation, the nature of the Bible, a theology of scripture, in other words. And so we're going to approach it uh, basically three ways. We're going to talk about the nature of inspiration, uh, inerrancy, and authority. And it's basically a three-legged stool, and you need all three legs if you're going to have a solid understanding of the Bible. So, um, if, if we were to give you a broad survey, which we won't, of biblical texts, we would be able to show you um, that the Bible is replete with texts that will say things such as, uh, Moses wrote all that the Lord said, or the word of the Lord came to, and then you can fill in the blank, whether it be Joshua, Moses, Zechariah, but it just over and over again, the scripture is speaking of references where God has spoken and also where it was recorded. Yeah. You'll uh, also see uh, 
you know, like in Nehemiah 8, where Nehemiah stands up and reads the scripture and then gives an explanation of the law or the word of God. And so he's, there's a self-understanding there that there's inherent authority and that right. this is God's word. Right. Um, in fact, that's going to be all the way through the Old Testament, just this, the, the rediscovery of the law and the necessity for it. Um, and so we're not going to get into all of that. Uh, and the reason is you can find that in any systematic theology textbook. You can go online and just look at um, various websites like uh, it's monergism.com. Yeah, I mean, and you'll get great material right there. So we're just going to go from there into the idea of uh, some systematic theology issues, and the first is going to be inspiration. So what are the presuppositions? Well, first, um, no no apology. You like the way I handed that off to (laughs) you with no warning? Professional transition right there. (laughs) Yeah, uh, so presupposition. Um, We would say there's no apologies that need to be made concerning the idea of moving from the scriptures through the scriptures to the scriptures. And that's a quote um, from a Presbyterian. Yep. Um, and in, in constructing an inductive bibliology. Okay, so um, what's that mean? Meaning building from the text of scripture itself. Right. That, that we're gonna start with the scriptures to figure out what it states about itself, its own self-attestation. And, and it's important for listeners to understand that if you're coming to this and hoping that we're going to somehow uh, defend or prove, you'll, you'll not get that from us because the Bible doesn't, it, it just doesn't do it. It, it simply, we're going to take the word of God for what it says and, and draw out from it. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, so there's a couple of key terms that I love. I don't know why I love them, but I love them. Um, when you're dealing with bibliology and the first one is uh, the term auto Pistic. Um, this is a person who holds to the belief that scriptures themselves are sufficient to determine the truth, inerrancy, infallibility, authority, and preservation of itself. It does not rely on any outside argument to help buttress the Bible's own declarations. So that's that's key term number one. Uh, you want to give the second yeah. one? Um, the second one is what's then known as axiopistic. Um, and so this is a person who brings a great deal of outside thought, things like logic or reason um, and argumentation into the discussion of, of bibliology, uh, specifically regarding the Bible's self-statements, regarding its truth and its inerrancy, its infallibility, uh, to authority and preservation. And so you're trying to take outside arguments to make sense of what the Bible is supposed to be. Yeah, and, and behind that then is, a presupposition. The presupposition is that the Bible in and of itself cannot prove itself or is not sufficient. You need something outside of it to make it believable, I guess. Is, yeah. and, and so... Which is opposite of your term, autopistic. Right. Which, which the presupposition is the Bible sufficient to make its own claim about what it is. Right. And, and the problem with this whole axiopistic idea is that no matter how careful you construct your logical argument, because that's ultimately what it gets down to, um, somebody can always come up with a counter to it. Um, ultimately, it's going to come down to, thus saith the Lord. This is this is what the text says. And there's men like, um, you know Clark Pinnock mm-hmm. or of him? Yeah. He, he's a famous uh, axiopist, or was, I think he's now dead. 
And he started out as a Calvin, Calvinist, uh, very reformed, and then, uh, but he was a uh, he was a dyed in the wool axiopist, and he just made his arguments um, outside of Scripture. And eventually, he was encountering more and more people giving counter arguments, and he moved from a reformed position to an Arminian position. And then he went from a position of inerrancy to a position of the fallibility of the Scripture. He ended up messed up in so many points of theology. He ended up actually toward open theology mm-hmm. because the idea was um, he ultimately believed that man was so free that God could not determine anything up to and including the writing of the Bible. And so... Uh, not everyone ends up to that extreme, but that's that's just one of the natural outcomes of, of this. So, I don't know if anyone else has ever heard those terms, but they're good terms to have. And and what you're listening to are two men who are committed autopists. Autopists. Yes. Yes. So, in light of that, um, let's just give some... So, again, autopistic is the Bible's going to tell us what it is. Yeah. That's our presupposition. Yeah, and we're not, to, we don't have to prove that. Or defend that. Yeah. Right. So Yeah, we'll, that's a better way to yeah, say it. Yeah, we'll give we'll just give some Bible verses um though to to see how and these are ones that a lot of people know, obviously they're famous ones, but what the Bible says about itself. Um so in Second Timothy verses or chapter three verses fifteen through seventeen, uh Paul is speaking to Timothy and he says, From childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. So this is what Paul is understanding in this context, the Old Testament to be. It's, right. it's, it's, it's um, sufficient to give you wisdom that leads to salvation and then equip you for all that you might need in living out that godly life. Right, so he's emphasizing here the product. It, uh, it is God-breathed, and it's profitable. And, uh, and, and then the extensiveness of it, that's all of Scripture, uh, which, as you said, was the Old Testament. Um, another one would be Second Peter 1, 19-21. You want to read that one, Lena? And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. All right, so that very last uh, prepositional phrase, from God, is, is key because it shows the ultimate source. It's, it's not coming from man or man's uh, imagination, but it's literally, it's coming from God. And then there's these immediate channels through which God speaks. Uh, the prophets um, were appropriate vessels to be used by God. Um, and this is how God would speak. But it was not the prophet speaking, it was God speaking. And so what we see with that is the scriptures are divine. Uh, they're not, to use a, uh, a fancy word, docetic, mm-hmm. which is an, an old, old heresy that taught that Christ was not human in the same way the scriptures are oftentimes seen as uh, not divine um, or they're not seen as 
also being written by humans. The reality is the scriptures are both divine and human. These yeah. prophets are writing it, but its ultimate source comes from Yeah, and man. you see that in how the, I mean, Luke sounds a lot different than Paul. Yeah. yeah. Right, or Peter or John. And so there's something of the man in it, but they're simply the medium. And, yeah. and I know for a fact uh, that if I gave you a random Greek text that happened to be from one of John's writings that within seconds you'd be saying, oh, this is John. Yep. Because, I mean, it's, and, and then Paul, yep. you know, very, very simple yep. uh, to see that. And so, yeah, you see those elements of the human uh, side to this, but all of it ultimately is still coming from yeah. God. Yeah. So let's talk about some some theological corollaries, which is the fancy phrase, but the things related to this topic, right, the right. theological topics related to this. So um, the first one's inerrancy, which is distinct from infallible, right? Yes. Um, so talk about inerrancy. Oh, I was scrolling ahead. Let me oh. catch up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to transition you. Wow, yeah. <laughs> We're just hitting on all cylinders tonight. All right, so inerrancy. Um, this is built built into this topic are the ideas discussed uh, regarding what we just talked about, and that's the nature of inspiration. Um, the inerrancy of Scripture means, and this comes from Grudem, Grudem, I'm sorry, that Scripture in the original, that's key, the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So all that's saying is there. this is nothing more than the idea that the Bible speaks the truth and always speaks the truth. The issue for the reader of the Bible, therefore, is never to wonder if this really happened, but rather to accept it as truth and to consider what they're to do in light of it. Um, and this becomes a, a really big issue when you're dealing with things like miracles. In fact, um, we had Grayson preach on Jonah and, yeah. the, and the big fish. Um, and, and the question is not, well, how does that happen? The scripture declares it happens and you embrace it. Or my whole big series on Genesis 1 through 11, and it's like, look, you're either going to buy into the fact of what the Scripture says regarding how this world came into being, or you're not. It really is no middle ground. You don't, even though theologians kill themselves trying to find a middle ground, the reality is we either accept it as inerrant and it's not teaching something contrary to fact or not. Yeah. So, so inerrancy is the Scriptures are completely true and there is no error. Right infallibility is they're not capable of error. Right, right, right. So it's a slight distinction, but they're terms that you need to know when you're talking about bibliology. So uh, some key texts, um, you know, if God's the author behind the scriptures and we're saying that therefore the scriptures are completely true in all that they say, why is that the case? Well, because God is innately truthful. Yeah. Right, and so that's where we're always gonna begin. We want to, um, understand that God is innately uh, truthful. Um, and in fact, you can't separate the scriptures from God. And this even gets into the whole issue of even the, the whole of systematic theology. I think we brought it up when we talk, talked about types of theology, but you can't look at any individual aspect of systematic theology without then pulling back and right. seeing the whole because they don't exist in parts. Um, when you're talking about God's truthfulness, you're also talking about his being, his um, his character, his holiness, and all of the other aspects. So they all kind of come together. Same thing happens when you're talking about the Bible. 
you're dealing not just with the Bible all by itself, but you're actually dealing with the person and character of God because this is his revelation of himself. So yeah. um, we'll just throw out a few, uh, two, I think. Yeah, it's windy. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll throw out a couple of passages about his truthfulness. Yeah. One is Numbers twenty three nineteen. You want to read that one? God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Okay, so a clear statement about the nature and the character of God. He, he is not like a man that he should lie, um, and therefore, nor that he would need to repent. So this is the God who stands behind these scriptures. Another one would be Titus 1 and verse 2. Paul, uh, oh, so go ahead. No. Go ahead. <laughs> Paul, a bond servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, and the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. That's a good one because it, it uh, connects God who cannot lie with his promises, which are found in Scripture. I, what I almost said was uh, the Numbers 23 uh, one is also pretty brutal about man. Yeah. I mean, it's like God is not a man that he should lie. It's like, I, I guess I... Natural. Yeah, I just sort of forget sometimes that we're that prone right. toward that sin. <laughs> but, yeah, good old scripture. It just beats you upside the head. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, so so the innate truthfulness of God is just something that is built into the nature of bibliology. Um, but also you just have the simple testimony of the scriptures themselves. So in Psalm 12, verse 6, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. So, a, a strong emphasis upon the purity of God's word. Yeah. Another one would be that famous one from John 17, 17, um, where he says, Sanctify them in truth, and then why? For your word is truth. And I love that one because it's not saying your word is, is truthful, like it, it's just a description of it, but right. it's a statement about what the word is by its very essence. It is truth. Yeah. Um, it's the standard of truth. And and one of the sneaky ways people uh, talk about the Bible will say that it contains truth. Yeah. Um, and it's like, it's it's oh, it's a first step into apostasy often. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. Because now what that means is because it contains truth, it also doesn't contain truth. And there are aspects that you have to draw out. Um, in fact, that's kind of what's going on partly behind this new move. Have you noticed there's a big push right now for the need of a new Bible translation that's not uh, a committee primarily made up of white yes, individuals? Yes, I just heard about that. Yeah. Women and people of color, yeah. Yeah, you you got to have that or... The translation can't be Yeah, it, it's reflecting a white ideology. And I'm like... Which the presupposition is that, and that in some ways, the truthfulness of Scripture is bound up with people right, in God's right, creation, right. not inherent to the words themselves. Right. And and so when you look at that, at first you're like, well, oh, that makes sense. It's Fairness, like, no, it doesn't. You, you're going to have to get into, does the word, uh, is the word truth by its very fact, or is it only one that can contain the truth? So something yeah. for people to think about. So there's some things that we we think are helpful to consider. Um, this is uh, stuff that we drew out of Grudem's theology. Um, the first is that the Bible can be 
and er inerrant, yet speak in everyday terms. Um, people put a standard on the Bible that it's just not realistic. Um, an example would be uh, that saying that the sun is rising or the rain is falling. Uh, the fact is, of course, the earth is rotating around the sun, therefore it's not the sun that sets. And because the earth is a sphere, rain is coming down to the earth upward, downward, sidewards. Um, the Bible also will use round numbers. Uh, therefore, we don't need to wonder if it was exactly 10,000 uh, men who died in a battle anymore than we would uh, wonder of the truthfulness of a reporter who says there were 10,000 at some right. good concert. Yeah. Uh, you know, just, it uses... So, so people try to discredit the Bible's truthfulness because it will say things like the sun sets. Yeah. And they're like, well, see, that's not scientifically accurate. But the point to understand is the Bible uses what's called phenomenological language. It looks at a phenomenon mm. and yeah. will describe the way that it appears to man. But yeah. it has no bearing on the truthfulness no. of Scripture at all. What, what you're really dealing with there is a Romans 118, yeah. and, right, yeah. of... Um, suppressing the truth and unrighteous. You're just looking for some way to justify that you don't have to obey the scripture. Yeah. Another one to consider, and again, this, this doesn't make the Bible not true, uh, but the Bible will use loose quotations. Um, so looking, for instance, at various quotes in the New Testament, the Old Testament, uh, it's not uncommon at all to see um, an inexact quote. Um, in fact, the reason for that is often because the New Testament writers are quoting from the Septuagint, right? Right, the Greek translation right, right, of the right. Old Testament. But the Old Testament is translated from the Hebrew, so yeah. there's going to be a little bit of discrepancy. So these these New Testament, like the, the apostles, for instance, I mean they're they're very familiar with the Septuagint. That's what they're quoting from. Um, so it's it's going to be a loose quotation, and and it's not again very very common, but we do it this all the time in our own speech where we're given the essence mm -hmm. of yeah. it. I always like. Uh, in Hebrews, uh, yeah. my, my favorite quote is, it is written somewhere. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, yes. A divinely, divinely inspired, yes. it is written somewhere. Yes. Right. <laughs> Remember that guy that came in and did it? What was he? He was doing a presentation one Sunday. He was like, he was trying to quote scripture or something. And he, he couldn't think of it. He's like, oh, it's, it's somewhere. And he's trying to justify his point. It was like 12 years ago anyways. Oh, man. He, he never I remember came back, that. But. <laughs> but yeah, I mean... He, there's times you you just don't have to give an exact quote because that's not the point. Yeah. We do it all the time here where we're only going to pull out the the necessary part of a passage. Um, and if people want to freak out over that, we can bore them by reading the whole chapter yeah. and for right. every time we want to make a point. But um, anyhow, it's, it's a common thing in the Bible. Yeah. Another one would be um, thinking about some of the common objections that people will uh, make um, that they'll say it's only authoritative and inerrant regarding faith and practice. That's a popular one. Right. Um, very, very common and, and actually a rather subtle attack if you're not careful when you're dealing with the authority of the Bible because it sounds reasonable on the surface, but it's actually destructive because it attacks the very foundation of the Bible it seeks to separate daily life and reality from faith and practice. Like somehow how I speak to my wife um, is not a biblical 
concept or how I conduct my day-to-day business. Um, this is, however, impossible to do. Uh, just thinking about the creation account again, um, this view would allow for many viewpoints, which is what's going on today. We, you've got every view under the sun, no pun intended, um, about how the world came into being. And they're like, look, it's not that important. Really understand that Genesis 1 and 2 is merely trying to make a theological point that God is the maker of the heavens and earth. The how is not described, even no, though it, is. it says <laughs> God made and God said, and oh, it's very frustrating. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, there are many who love the Lord and who are saved, but will hold to this viewpoint. And so, you're going to see it in commentaries, you're going to hear it in sermons, um, but I would argue is usually the first step toward liberalism. It, it's hard to know where to stop once you start that. Once you start saying that it's inerrant in faith and practice, but not in everything, um, where do you put the period? And, and the people put periods all over the place, but it's really hard for you to defend why you put the period there right. and not somewhere else. Right. Uh, another common objection is we have no inerrant manuscripts available today, so it's silly to speak of the Bible as inerrant. Um, now, this gets into the yeah, this is a, hard. a very complex issue, um, but a fascinating issue and actually an encouraging study for evangelicals, uh, something known as textual criticism, um, which we still, I'd still like to do an episode on that and intrigue about seven listeners, but yeah, well, I'm thinking how we could do one episode on it. We could. I did a I did a lecture on it. Maybe I could get Doctor, my old theology professor, and of course, everyone who listens to him would need a uh, open dictionary. Well, that man uses words that nobody in their normal mind, and he uses them properly. Yeah. Anyhow, <laughs> so um, a right understanding of an inerr- inerrancy, though, which a lot of people don't think about is the only inerrant writings we have are the original right. manuscripts or what are properly referred to as autographs. Um, those are the, the, the thing that Paul actually penned right. or his amanuensis penned. Right. That's the thing that's inerrant. So then over the years, there were copies of these made. Um, and then we get all these manuscripts. So these manuscripts are not inerrant. Right. Um, In fact, we know there there's errors. We can point them out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but the helpful thing and the encouraging thing to think, um, thanks to textual criticism is we know we have about 99% certainty of the accuracy of the actual words of the Bible. So, you know, that 1%, maybe that we don't have where there's variance, these are words that are not going to affect any major meaning or doctrine. So it's going to be pronouns. Right. So I, I know like in John and first John, he says, is it, um, I write so that you may have joy or I write so that we may have joy. Right. That, you know, that's the discrepancy, but that brings no bearing on the meaning of the text. And it doesn't change the theology. Right. Um, In fact, if anybody ever was curious, they could get a Greek New Testament. Um, You use the what? The NA 20. Yeah. I think they have 28 now, but I have the 27. I I use... uh, uh, UBS, mm-hmm. um, but on the bot, yours is more technical. I I didn't realize that. Um, at the bottom of it, on every page, it's called the apparatus, and what it'll do is it will grade any place where there's a discrepancy with the various manuscripts, and there's thousands of these. Mm-hmm. Um, they grade it A, B, C, or D, and 
with that, they'll explain to you, here's what this manuscript shows and this, this is what others, and then they'll explain why mm-hmm. they went with this rendering. Um, it's actually an incredibly fascinating subject. And for me, it strengthened my faith as I began to understand the rigor that's involved in putting together a Greek New Testament um, or, yeah. or the uh, Hebrew Old Testament. So, so with that though, when we're talking about the issue of, of these mistakes, or these copyist mistakes. Um, if we say that it was in the process of copying, then the mistake there lies with man. Um, right, but, right, right, but right. But in its original, there's no error with God, right? Right. Um, so that's an important thing to understand when you're talking about the infallibility or the inerrancy of scripture. Yes. And then another one that's real common, um, I was ranting about one man repeatedly in my sermon series through Genesis 1 through 11 uh, is this, the writers of the Bible accommodated the current beliefs and ideas of their time. Now, this is closely related to the idea that the Bible is inerrant only in faith and practice. Um, all All it is is that the idea is that the writers, and therefore God himself, had to accommodate wrong thinking that was going on in their time. Um, and it's built upon our own assumption about reality and knowledge. Um, and so we shouldn't accept that everything that was written is actually correct. It was just correct for those days and for that time. Um, uh, John Walton yeah. is a guy that wrote, has written a lot on um, Adam and Eve and creation and Noah and the flood. And he, he actually makes that argument that um, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe in the infallibility of Scripture. I believe and have a high view of Scripture. I just believe that when God spoke of these things, and, and he'll actually reference Jesus Christ, that he was uh, allowing for their ignorance. And so he just told them what they believed at the time, uh, but that that was not a lie. And I'm like, in what world? Yeah, you know, in, in what world is that? And and again, the question then arises, where do you stop at that? Where do you deal with that and say, well, this part isn't that correct and this is not. It's really coming from the idea that our understanding of the world today is better than God's. Right. And I, I can't accept that. You know, there's also a passage in like uh, Ephesians 4.24. Paul tells us to become more like God. And then he tells us in verse 25, you know, put away every falsehood and speak the truth. Well, how do you do that if we're trying to become like God, but then God is not telling us the truth about how things were and how things happened? So the once you start picking at it, it sounds good and, and it gives you an escape clause, but once you start picking at it, it really becomes problematic in, in every level. So that that's the idea of inerrancy. Yeah. The next one would be the idea of authority. Right. On the Huge. authority of the scriptures. Um, <clears throat> and so we're just going to give some, some key perspectives on this. There's a lot more we could talk about. Um, but a first one would be the Old Testament prophets. Um, they always had this introductory formula of, you know, thus saith the Lord, or the Lord spoke saying, or the word of the Lord came. Did you know the proper pronunciation of Seth? It looks like it should be saith, but Seth. Where'd, Just, you, where'd you hear that? 
Dr. Criswell. <laughs> That's safe. That's and he Seth, said, the Lord. He, he made it a big point, because, especially because it was um, back in the King James Day and, and the appropriate pronunciation, and it was beaten into me, and I was like, I've never forgotten it. So anyhow, yeah. now Just you... Just like, uh, how, do you say, how do you say Israel? Israel. Yeah. Yeah, got to say Israel. Sure. I don't know why, but is, you got to. Yes, yeah, he is, likes the... Not, not is, Israel. 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 Israel, yeah. So the... Old Testament prophets, though, when they're speaking, yeah, that was totally helpful. Yeah. Wasn't it? <laughs> they, they, be, they begin their speech as this is what Yahweh has said, and then they'll give a quote. Um, so there, there was authority there. It's not just their own thoughts about what they feel or think God wants them to say. They're actually speaking God's words themselves, right. and so they're His mouthpiece, right? Um, and, yeah, and therefore it carries the authority Absolutely. of our mm-hmm. Lord. Uh, you also will see things uh, like the internal fulfillment um, in the scripture, like Daniel 9.2. You want to read that one? In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books in the books, the number of the years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord. I'm sorry. This is weird. Daniel. <laughs> Let me try again. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. It's a heck of a sentence, huh? <laughs> You're like, I need a long breath. Um, what's cool about this one, though, is that here, Daniel is reading Jeremiah. I love this passage, um, specifically Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12. And he sees it, one, yeah. as literal, which we'll get into when we get into things of eschatology and interpretation. Yeah. But he, he doesn't say, well, I wonder what that means. Uh, he takes it as literal, and he also sees it as authoritative. So he has the expectation of God's acting because of what the prophet has written. Um, yeah. There's another one. Yeah, then in First Peter um, chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Yeah. At, oh, go ahead. Read it. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Yeah, that's a f- fascinating yeah. passage because then it goes on to say the angels also made inquiry. Um, yep. But here it is, um, the prophets were prophesying of something, um, and then they're searching it to try and figure out what the heck it was talking about. Because they understood the meaning was resident within it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, it's, it's speaking of the coming Messiah, but then it says it was the per- the spirit of Christ within them indicating these things. Right. So, there, right. there's the authority of God. Well, and also the spirit of Christ was within them. It was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ. So the spirit of Christ is the one who's doing right. the predicting. Again, it gets into that nature of the inspiration. It's a spirit breathed document. Yeah. Now we should pause for a quick second and let people know this is a heavily edited version of what we actually teach when we're teaching systematic theology. Uh, it, it, we, we chose to only give you some key passages. We have, we literally had hundreds that we chose not yeah. to, look at because you'd be bored yeah. and and you'd also be on a five-hour process. But yeah. just understand that we're only cherry-picking some key passages, and there's many, many more 
that is available. Yeah. So, so you also have illustrations of, of the Bible writers. Right. Um, understanding that there's some kind of authority to their own words. Um, so for instance, in Deuteronomy 32, it says, when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. So he's saying, look, there's authority here, but the authorities are in the words themselves. And how many of the words? All of them. All of them. Yeah. Right. I mean, he beats that kind of to death. Yeah. Um, and then the first thing they do is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> abandon the word. Uh, yeah. and or the just keep of, the parts they like. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Just like us. Yep. Uh, or in Isaiah 40, uh, verses 6 through 8, Lena. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And so, that's a famous passage, but... Um, Again, we forget all the time, and we're so quick to abandon the authority of the Word of God for favor of the current scientific trend of the moment, the latest idea in psychology or whatever it is. But the only thing that stands forever, literally the only thing in all of this creation is God's Word. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's a brutally simple passage. But you also will see um, this illustrated by Jesus himself when you're reading the New Testament. Um, the most simplest, and we're going to get into this more detail in the next podcast, so we'll just make reference. When you look at the Gospels, um, you will always see the seriousness, uh, seriousness with which Christ is viewing the Scripture and the Old Testament. He never treats it casually. He never disregards no. it. He never discounts it. He never apologizes for it. Um, it is the Word of God. Uh, and so it's always treated historical. It's always treated as true and authoritative. In fact, it's even the basis for his response to Satan in the temptation which you were doing. and or You're still doing the uh, working through that, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, another one would be the, so you got Jesus Christ, obviously, but then you also have the New Testament apostles. Um, and, you know, they, they have their introductory formulas to all their epistles. Um, but it, frequently in the New Testament, the epistles start out with the fact that they're apostles of Jesus Christ. Right. right. And, and so they understood that now what they're about to write carried the authority of Christ's words. Yeah. Right. Um, as they were his very messengers. That's what apostle means. I'm right. Right. Um, I sent one. Um, so they understood that even what they were saying was authoritative, which is why Paul can command you something, right? Or even Peter referencing Paul's writings as scripture in, in certain places. You want me to do the illustration? Apparently. Well, that's the next point. So. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> sorry, guys. We're both tired today. Um, and a way to illustrate Acts chapter uh, 1 Verse 16, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled. I mean, that's about as blunt as you can get. Which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. That's a great one also on the nature of free will. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, okay, I guess Judas is an exception to the rule or whatever, but no, it had to be fulfilled. But notice uh, Peter's absolute confidence that the scripture is true and that had to be fulfilled. And that's what they're watching yeah. or watched uh, in the betrayal of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And we were talking earlier when we were working through this, because um, I am preaching through the temptation narrative about right. And... I talked about how um, there's this language of divine necessity, that it is necessary. Like he says here, it's necessary that it be fulfilled this way. Um, so, so when the devil comes to Jesus to tempt him, um, Jesus could believe the lies of Satan and buy into those, but he also understood that there was a necessary way that certain things had to be fulfilled. And so when you trace out that term through Luke, it is necessary, it is necessary. It's in reference to his sufferings. It's necessary that Christ suffer. It's necessary that Christ die. Um, so Satan offers him all the kingdoms of the world. So he's basically trying to give him uh, the crown without the cross. But Jesus yeah. says the only way to get the crown is through the fulfillment of God's plan. Right. It's necessary. But he's he's basing that on Old Testament scripture because that's his authority. Right? right. So he could just look at God's promise to him and say, well, it's promised to me already so I can fulfill it how I want. He's like, nope. I have to do it in accordance to how God has said in Old Testament. And, and a pastoral application of that is how often we will rationalize an end around, um, you know, like Christ said, through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. And we're going to say, well, maybe. I mean, <laughs> if I can avoid them all, I still can have it. But the reality is it's necessary for us mm -hmm. to go through tribulations, many of them. And ultimately, we will enter the kingdom of God. There are there are things that we just do in our lives um, where we're trying to circumvent the absolute authority of the Scripture and still receive um, perhaps a blessing or yeah. a consequence that's supposed to come as we obey the Scripture fully. Mm -hmm. um, there's another passage um, that we could use um, in First Thessalonians four two through four. Lena, you want to do that? For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of Jesus of Lord of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. All right, so here Paul is saying, We gave you commandments. Now where did they come from? They came by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So these are not just suggestions that Paul came up with, or well, that's Paul's opinion, but we don't have to obey it. He says, no, they're from the authority of the Lord Jesus, which gets into your whole point of these are apostles. Uh, and then he, he's like, and these are the commands, um, that you be holy, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you know how to possess your body uh, in, in a proper and, and God-honoring way. So again, there is this expectation of uh, the scripture is not just giving us truth, but it's authoritative. It's expected to be received as such, and it's expected to be obeyed. Yeah. And then there's one more famous passage from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. You want to read that one? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him 
with whom we have to do. Yeah. So again, the word of God is living and active. It's not old. It's not outdated. It's not antiquated. It applies to all times, all places, always. Um, and notice just the, the, the way he describes it, the power and the authority there. It's able to separate that which is inseparable. Right. Right. So, so we can pull out marrow now because of technology, but, but joints and marrow were inseparable when this was being written. Um, the soul and the spirit, I mean, they're, they're inseparable and yet he, there's a separation. To, to, you, how do you separate a thought from an intention yeah, of a how, thought? How do you even discern where it goes from intention to thought? Yeah. It, it's impossible, but the word can. Yeah, it's got this unique ability and power. Um, and there's nothing or no creature hidden from that. That's right. what's so unique about it. So actually, when, when people begin to believe something other than the fact that the Bible is inspired and inerrant and authoritatively, they begin to abandon the one thing that can bring a true, honest, faithful, true spotlight into a situation. Um, and we should be always seeking to say, what does the scripture say mm -hmm. to this issue? Yeah. Um, so to put it all together, we, we looked at three areas, inspiration, inerrancy, and authority, uh, the authority of the scripture, all three of those in, in the Bible and in conservative theology are non-negotiable. So next time what we're gonna look at is the relationship of Jesus Christ to the scripture and the relationship of the spirit to scripture and hopefully that will be helpful as well. Thank you. Like and share.